Good morning, everybody. All right, I'm going to read from the text. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. And then we'll go through it together and respond in worship and in prayer. This is what the gospel writer Mark says. Speaking of Jesus, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. In the early 1900s, sorry, not the 1900s, the 1990s, very different, a youth leader by the name of Janie Tinklenberg had a small youth group of high schoolers that she wanted to help remember the actions and behaviors and words of Jesus in the moment that they needed it the most. And so she designed a bracelet with an acronym on it that they could wear. And the acronym was WWJD, or What Would Jesus Do? That bracelet would go on to become very popular as people all over the country and even abroad would start wearing this bracelet, this reminder of what Jesus might do in a situation that the bracelet wearer would find themselves Not a lot of people know this, but they actually had a second bracelet for the other wrist, and it was supposed to answer the first question of what would Jesus do. It was fully rely on God, or frog. That one never quite got as popular. But the first one did, and it's a great question. What would Jesus do if he were facing a situation that I was facing in the same moment? Now, having Growing up as a high schooler in the 1990s, I remember this acronym, and I remember the bracelets and the shirts and the hats and all of the memorabilia, and I found it helpful to a point, because whenever I'd answer that question, having never read the Bible before in my life, I didn't know what Jesus would do, so I'd just make it up subjectively. Well, I think he would probably do this. Half the time, I would be wrong. And yet, we probably don't have to ask, necessarily, what Jesus would do. Because we have here an entire record of what Jesus actually did. Maybe a better question to ask is, what did Jesus do? And that's what I want to talk to you about in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, and through the whole entire book of Mark for all of eternity that we're in it together. But we see this right here, three questions I want you to ask or that we can ask together. Where does Jesus go? What does Jesus do? And why did Jesus do it? Let's talk about this first one. Where does Jesus go? It's not too complicated. He goes to a few places. Last week, we saw that he began his weekly ministry in the synagogue, something that 
is maybe the closest parallel to what we're experiencing right now. A gathering of people, fellowshipping together, opening up the scriptures, responding in worship and in prayer. But he doesn't stay there, just like we don't stay here after Sunday. He moves from the synagogue to a person's living room. Look at verse 29. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, I don't think Mark is trying to juxtapose the synagogue with a small living room gathering as if one were better than the other. I think he's showing us that Jesus is in both. We see Jesus gathering in these large liturgical groups where corporate worship is happening and corporate response and study of the scriptures is happening. But we also see Jesus in the most intimate and casual meals with good old Simon Pete and Andy, James, and John. We also see that his rhythm between the two, and especially uh, between the synagogue and the living room, became so popular that the entire city would come to his doorstep. Look at verse 33. The whole city was together gathered at the door. And we're going to see in a moment why the whole city was so attracted to Jesus. But it starts with Jesus' rhythms throughout, throughout the city. From the synagogue in an environment somewhat like this, maybe a little different, and to somebody's living room. And over and over, we see that Jesus' mission was in every sphere of life. We don't see him cloistered off on the mountaintop, getting spiritual with God day in and day out with his Father. We also don't see him merely in a living room, camped out, isolated from the rest of the world. He's moving around. Jesus' mission was in every sphere of life. And when I see him doing things like this, when I see the places that Jesus goes, it makes me question myself in a good, positive way. Chris, are there any areas of your life that are off limits to, to Jesus? Maybe that's a good question for all of us. Maybe some of us feel a tremendous gravitation towards this type of gathering, but the rest of our week is closed off to maybe the movements of the Spirit. Maybe Jesus is inviting you into deeper places in your relationships and community amidst all the challenges and struggles that we're facing in those things right now. Maybe some of us love those small spaces. Maybe there's even one or two of us listening now that love Zoom calls. But this thing is missing from our lives. What would Jesus say to you? See, ultimately, Jesus doesn't stop at any of those places. He moves from the big gatherings of the synagogue not only to a living room, but also to a deathbed. And it's his ministry at the deathbed that will capture a lot of people's attention. That brings us to the second question. What does Jesus do in those places that Jesus goes? I'll give you two things. First is, heals a lot of sick people. Mark tells us in verse 30 and 31, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. I always get caught on that first sentence because I never think of Peter as having a wife, but he does. 
The Bible only brings her up two times. One is right here. The other is in 1 Corinthians, which leads me to believe that she either was, uh, Mark didn't see fit to bring up too much of her life, or more likely, something happened to her. Just like Joseph, who gets a lot of fanfare in the early stages of Jesus' life, but's never brought up again. We remember that Rome was a difficult place to live. Rome was a hard place to live. It was a hard place to survive, and not everybody made it. There's a cost. And even as we're struggling with the things that we're struggling with in Santa Barbara, we remember that the people that Jesus originally spoke to understand what we're going through. And if he could speak to them, he could speak to our struggle as well. But it says immediately after, Simon's mother-in-law gets sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. And he comes and takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. One of the things I love about Mark's depictions of Jesus, all the gospel writers' depictions of Jesus, is so how, so how low-key and casual they are in describing some of the most incredible things that he does. If I were writing the Gospel of Mark, I would have made a big deal out of that sentence. And Jesus rushed in, and he took her by the hand, and he pronounced 50 things, and the heavens opened up, and she was healed. Same thing with the feeding of the 5,000, or the multiplying of the, the bread and the loaves with the feeding of the 5,000. It doesn't ever actually say, he did a miracle, but we all know that he did. The gospel writers simply glance across it, and he multiplied it, and everyone had food to eat, as though this were a normative practice of this particular man. What's extraordinary for us is often very ordinary to Jesus. This is just how he lives. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. Jesus heals the sick. He doesn't just heal the sick. We see that he casts out demons. Verse 32 and 34 says that the evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So he heals one woman, and by the end of the day, a bunch of people are coming to, the, to, to Simon's door to be healed and for demons to be cast out. And the whole city gathered together at the door, verse 33, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. Here's what I think Mark is trying to focus our attention on. He wants us to see that whether it's healing physical sickness or it's the casting out of demonic oppression, none of it is extraordinary for Jesus. Jesus is Lord over all sickness and demonic oppression. It doesn't matter what kind, what flavor, what vignette, what slice it happens to come in, or what form. Jesus is simply the master over it. Perhaps some of us are asking that question right now. What area of your life do you need the master to heal? Maybe for some of you, it's physical sickness. Maybe for others, it's emotional. Maybe it's spiritual. Still for others, maybe it's relational. You're coming to the right place. 
And the right place isn't necessarily a building. It's a person. Jesus is Lord over all of those things. So what sickness do you need healing for? Jesus can heal you. What demonic oppression do you need to be set free from today? Jesus can heal you. What heartache do you need mended today? Jesus can heal you. What turmoil do you have that needs peace? Jesus can heal you. What loneliness do you need love to replace? Jesus can heal you. What confusion do you face that needs clarity? Jesus can heal you. What addiction do you need freedom from? Jesus can heal you. What self-defeating false belief do you need to be released from? Jesus can heal you. What do you need healing for? Jesus can heal you. Because he's not merely a teacher who can thrill a synagogue with TEDx-style oratory abilities. He leaves the synagogue for the deathbed to show everyone in attendance that he is king over demons and sickness too. What do you need healing from? So we see where Jesus goes, we see what Jesus does. He goes everywhere from big gatherings to small living rooms to heal and set people free and to reverse the curse. And we could probably end right there, but Mark doesn't. As he wraps up this paragraph on this chapter of Jesus' life, he adds in a small twist. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't stay in this place. If I were him, or if I had a fraction of his powers, and I was experiencing some success in a small city like Capernaum or Santa Barbara, I would set up shop. I would promote myself and make sure everybody knew where they could go. And Jesus, strangely enough, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only one who can set the world free from the curse of sin and death, does exactly the opposite. We'll see that next week when we look up that text. He actually leaves this town and goes somewhere else in a hurry. But I want you to notice Jesus doesn't stay. He doesn't set up a medical clinic he doesn't promote himself. And those things might be entirely appropriate for Jesus' people. We should be setting things up like that in the darkest of places. But Jesus doesn't. Nor does he allow the demons to promote him. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This seems so counterintuitive to me. If I'm like with the Messiah and I want the whole world to know who he is, I'm like, okay, the demons are talking about him. Well, they're terrible, but bad publicity is still publicity, right? Let him speak. Everyone needs to know about this person. And yet Jesus, as he will often do through the gospels, quiets demons. He even quiets people. In another account, when he heals someone from le uh, leprosy, which was a very infamous disease in that day the, uh, of the skin, he specifically tells that person, don't tell anybody about this. Rather, go to the priest, go through the 
procedures that you need to do in order to be around other people. And of course, he, just like everybody that Jesus warns, goes and tells as many people as possible. The demons shut up, though. I always thought that was funny. Demons listen to Jesus sometimes more than people. Perhaps it's because they know, like Mark says, who he is. But this is the twist that Mark subtly introduces in chapter 1, and he'll keep pointing out throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus doesn't want a lot of fanfare at this point in his ministry. Why? And I think, I wonder, from all the other things that Jesus does and says, if it's not because everyone's motives so far seem to be based on astonishment and amazement. Remember the passage a a week or two ago? They were amazed and astonished by his teaching. This is how Jesus starts. He wows people. The problem is, astonishment and amazement don't always last. It's like uh, my kids' toys. I love getting gifts for my kids, and sometimes I'll save up a pretty penny to get some dream toy that Jude, my son, has been asking for for a long time. And it seems almost inevitable that no matter what I get my kids, they'll play with it for precisely 37 minutes and never pick it up again. It doesn't matter how special it is, it doesn't matter how rare, it doesn't matter the lengths that I went to get it or how much it cost. It will, by the end of the day, resort to the heap in the corner, never to be touched again. Ironically, they'll pick up a stick or a a rusty tool in the corner in the dirt and play with it for months. But it's just like kids' toys. Astonishment and amazement don't always last. And the same is true for our spiritual journey. Amazement and astonishment aren't always the best things to build our walk with God on. They give us a nice booster. They push us forward. They give us some momentum, but they don't last. And Jesus doesn't seem to build his ministry on the astonishment and amazement of the crowd. So the question that perhaps we're asking is, what does last? When the astonishment and the amazement dissipate, when we find ourselves in the beginning of 2021 and things are still not like we expected, what's going to last? And we haven't gone even all the way through the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we should already start seeing the themes. Jesus seems to suggest what lasts is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that he came to preach in chapter 1, verse 15. It's the kingdom of God that he says will thrive against all odds in chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. Eighteen times Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God in the gospel of Mark. Forty-five times in the gospel of Luke. And fifty-three times in the gospel of Matthew. What is the kingdom of God? It is the good news that God's rule and his reign are breaking into the midst of our darkness. And that, my friends is why you see healing. That's why you see the miracles. 
It's Jesus making a statement about himself. That I, Jesus Christ, am the one who can bring the kingdom into your suffering. And so, yes, we see healing. Yes, we see chains being broken. Yes, we see all sorts of joy and delight. But guess what? We also see suffering because we're seeing the tension of those two things come head to head. In fact, in a strange uh, twist, Jesus would go on to say that his ultimate method of healing our pain is to enter into our pain and suffering, ultimately seen in the cross. Three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, he would say to his disciples, I've come to die on the cross, and they just didn't understand. He then also would call them to deny themselves and carry their cross and follow after him. We are in the middle of two Contrary things, living in that tension. We're in a world of suffering. And we're in a world where Christ is healing. What I want you to take away from this, what I think we can take away from this, is that life, even though it's not always constant, can I get an amen from somebody? 2020, some of you are like, forget 2020. 2021 is not constant. Life isn't always constant. But if there's anything we can gather from this text, it's that Jesus is. And Jesus is the only one who can bring the kingdom of God to bear in our broken lives and in our sick world. And what I hope that we see, what we're going to see throughout the duration of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, is that at the beginning, the disciples began their following of him, enticed by his healings. But towards the end, they will die in love with the healer. And I, I pray for that for myself. I pray that for you, that those of us who began with astonishment with the things that Jesus did will end our lives in a deeper place, not based our spirituality, not founded on mere astonishment and not amazement, but allegiance, knowing that regardless of what our circumstances or environment look like, we know that this person is who he said he is. We know that he does what he claims to do, and we believe that he's coming back to finish the job. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here as we respond to the healer who brings healing from the synagogue to the deathbed because the same Jesus still displays his healing power today. He still claims that the kingdom is coming and is now here in him. And I believe that he wants to heal some of us today too. The question is, where do you need healing? 
Perhaps for some of you, it's physical healing. For others, maybe it's emotional. For still others, maybe it's spiritual. Others, maybe you're encountering demonic oppression that you want to be set free from. Maybe it's confusion or addiction or false beliefs. Maybe you're just tired and you need the wind of God's Holy Spirit and all of its refreshing capacity to wash through your soul. Maybe some of you don't need physical or spiritual or emotional healing. You need to be healed of your preconceived expectations of Jesus because they're setting you up for failure. You need to come at him based on his terms and maybe he needs to heal you from that. Whatever it is, at this church, we believe that Jesus has been healing for thousands of years and he continues to do that today. So what do you need to be healed from? I want to invite you to come, not to me, but to Jesus Christ himself. You know, an interesting thing about the Bible is that even though Jesus himself claims to be the healer who sets people free from all sorts of different things, he in a strange and mysterious twist calls on us to ask for those types of things. That's why we pray. That's actually why we ask other people to pray for us. James recommends this. The apostles recommend this. Jesus tells us to do this. That there are sometimes moments in our lives where we maybe can't even lift a finger to help ourselves, but there's somebody else in our lives, in our church, who has an unction to pray and can pray the prayer of healing on our behalf. And so if that's you and you just want an, uh, just a little bit of extra juice this morning, I want to invite you to do something we've been doing since we began as a church, and that's come up and ask someone to pray for you. If you look over at that uh, white suburban over there, there's four people that are willing to pray for you. Turn to someone and pray. Ask the Lord to show up in your life, whatever it is. Let's believe that Jesus Christ is in the business of healing right now and that he's willing to do it in your life if you would but ask.